The following program is paid for by Rudy Wealth Management. Good morning, and welcome to Paul Rudy's On the Money. You're invited to be part of today's show. Call 356-9397. Opinions and views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. And now, Paul Rudy's On the Money. Well, welcome everybody to our last show of On the Money for 2017. It's not like uh, some things haven't happened between the last show and this show. Um, we wanted to accommodate Jim Turpin and, and, and what a pleasure it was to do that, to allow him to go, for us to move the show. I had mentioned last time that we were going to probably do a show uh, last week, but again, more than happy to accommodate Jim Turpin. What a wonderful man and uh, you know what a great, great guy. Great guy to emulate and uh, great, uh, he's one of my heroes. I'm here with David Rudy from Rudy Wealth Management. David is a certified financial planner professional. David, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. And I probably messed up Dr. Fred Gertz. You know, I think he thought the show was last week. I'm not sure my communication was best. So no Dr. Fred today. Uh, so he'll be missed uh, today. But we're going to have just kind of a casual wrap-up show today. Uh, Scott's in with us, to, and he's more than welcome to ask questions and you know, things that he would like to do. Um, we're going to start out as usual. I don't have my script in front of me, but past performance is no indication of future results. Before you act on any advice, you really ought to talk to your own advisor and or CPA if it comes to taxes, which is good practical experience. Well, oh, I guess one of the biggest things, David, that happened uh, that's gotten all the attention is the Senate passed and the Congress uh, passed the tax bill. Uh, it's been signed, and it certainly caused a flurry, a flurry of activity around our office. Um, I know uh, between kind of lumping, what we're talking about is lumping charitable deductions into this year and anticipation for a lot of people, the more and more people now will not uh, itemize deductions. And so if they're not going to itemize, they might not get the charitable deduction, but it still makes sense to give money away to good causes. And I know you've dealt with that. Um, and so what have you kind of experienced from either charitable giving or, of course, the property taxes. And before you answer the question, I did call Paula Bates over at the county collector's office. She was delightfully helpful. Um, you know, I never pay, probably like a lot of people, I don't pay a lot of attention to the actual schedule of how our taxes, our property taxes in Illinois. And uh, Paula did tell me it's all through Illinois the same way. So my concern was now that the IRS came out with the rules that said, look, you have to make sure that if you're going to pay 2018 taxes in 2017, they have to have been assessed. Turns out when you pay your property taxes in 2018, and after she said it, I did remember that, you're really paying 2017's taxes. So there's no, seems to be no concerns there from an IRS reason, of course, IRS purpose. Uh, so it seems to qualify to be able to lump that deduction in. And uh, she did tell me that uh, most of the farmland, and I don't want to quote her, but uh, if not all, uh, a good bunch of farmland has not been assessed yet and probably won't be till January. I'm not sure how that factors in. And, and then you can't take it for granted that your property, ha it probably has for if you're a personal property owner, but I got the sense that maybe there's even some additional properties throughout the community that maybe haven't, they haven't gotten to, but they hope to today or tomorrow. Uh, so thanks to uh, Paula Bates over at the Champaign County Collector's Office. So kind of run, uh, I, it's been kind of a flurry. I know more for you, I think, than anybody. Um, what, what have you been running into now with the new tax rules? Well, I think just if you look at the general impact of the, the new tax laws, um, as Dr. Gertz said, for a lot of people, it's not going to have a huge impact. But the fact that they're increasing the standard deduction and they're also limiting some of the itemized deductions. And, and a couple of the important ones you mentioned are property taxes and state taxes, they're limiting that to a cap of essentially $10,000, and that's combined between the two. So if you look at people who have itemized their deductions in the past, and they've been able to deduct state income taxes and property taxes um, on their tax return, going forward, that may not be the case. Right, because, uh, you know, in the past, uh, at least the last standard deduction for 2017 is, uh, you know, twelve to 13000 depending on your age, et cetera. Uh, and now that's going to go to 24, you lose your exemptions, but still, you know, a lot more people are, uh, fewer people are going to itemize. I mean, that's pretty clear. Right. So what people are saying, or at least uh, hopefully a lot of times it's their CPA telling them is, hey, I think going forward, 
although you've itemized in the past, and, and even for 2017, I think you're going to itemize your deductions. I think 2018 and going forward, unless something really changes, there's a high likelihood you're going to take the standard deduction, and now you're not going to get that benefit of deducting your property taxes, state taxes, maybe your charitable contributions. So what people are trying to do is basically push all of those itemized deductions into this year, basically accelerate so, them. So is some of it, when it comes, for instance, charitable giving, you can only go so far with property taxes, uh, are you suggesting that clients anticipate, you know, if you know over the next X number of years you're going to give away a pretty large sum of money, but you were going to do it at 5000 a year, uh, you might you might push it all into this year if you have the money. Right, and, and it's actually really, really easy to do that. There's a thing called a donor-advised fund. And basically the way that works is you can contribute a big lump sum in the current year into this donor-advised fund. And the donor-advised fund, are you, the easiest way to think about them is they're usually... Uh, when I think of the big ones, I think of the one that Schwab, Fidelity, Vanguard, all the major brokerage firms have donor-advised funds. Right. And I actually looked, at, as a quick side note, at all the major custodians and the fees associated with their donor-advised funds and asset minimums and things, and they're all pretty similar. They're all at around 0.6%, um, basically a, a management An fee. An administration fee. You know, there's kind of a combo platter there. So there are fees involved, but basically what happens is for any money that you contribute, and it is an irrevocable contribution, right. and because of that, it allows you to take a deduction for that entire lump sum, even though you haven't technically gifted it out yet. And then you can gift as much or as little out as you want in the future. So so when and how you want, you'll dole it out in the future. You won't take a tax deduction then, because you've already taken it this year. Exactly. So the, the practical uh, benefit from that is like I said, if you're going to be gifting in small increments in future years, you may not actually get to deduct that because you're probably just taking the standard deduction, or you may be. Right. It depends on everyone's situation. Well, but a good majority of people will be. By concentrating that all into this year, you may be able to deduct all of it or most of it. And so you're taking something that otherwise in the future wouldn't have been deductible and now putting it in 2017 and enabling yourself to deduct it, which can make a big difference. And you've had people do some pretty big lump sums, right? Yeah, and, and you're limited to how much you can contribute um, based on the charitable contribution limits. It's based on your adjusted gross income. And I think, it, what is it, 50% if you're donating cash, cash. and 30% if you're donating appreciated securities. 30%, that's percentages of your adjusted gross income. Right. So you need to make sure that you're looking at that. Um, but if you have, the other people where this is particularly good is if for whatever reason you had unusually high income in a year, sometimes people will uh, assuming they were planning on making charitable donations at some point in their lifetime, concentrated into this year so that they can help offset that. Yeah, it seems like other than that, uh, you know, there hasn't been too much client interaction um, because while it appears that across the board, um, most people are going to get some form of tax deduction. And of course, there's all kinds of hyperbole going from both sides as to whether it's a disaster or the greatest thing on earth. And of course, you know, it's somewhere in between. And I've done quite a bit of digging in there. I'm not going to get into it today. But I, I'm satisfied that, um, well, yes, people that pay a higher percent of their income and income taxes are probably going to get a bigger, you know, end up with more after-tax income than the middle class for sure. Um, but really when you start doing the math, and, 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 and I'm not, again, this is, show's not going to be about this. I'm not turning it into politics. I'm satisfied personally when I really scrub the data and do the math there's a variety of sources. Some are liberal, some are conservative, some are in between. You kind of stir them all together, and it depends how you do the math and which denominator you use, whether you include, you know, uh, payroll deduction taxes, et cetera, or if you just look at the income tax. And so when I look at just how much income tax would somebody in earning forty to $50,000 pay in current law versus in future law, they're going to get a pretty good percentage cut. Uh, unfortunately, mathematically, if you gave everybody a 25% reduction in taxes, just mathematically, the people, the rich, are going to get end up with more higher after-tax income because they pay higher taxes. If you look at the upper 20th percentile, they pay somewhere around $69,000 on average of federal taxes. Uh, they still they also take in about $12,000 of net of transfer payments. Uh, so it just stands to reason. And when you look at uh, kind of the middle of it, they're, they're paying somewhere around 3,500 in taxes. So just that sheer from 70,000 to 3,500, uh, you could see that even if you use just everybody gets 25% off of their last year's tax bill, uh, it's going to appear to be unfair. 
but you know, one of the things I think about I, when I look at this tax thing, I really don't. Uh, I, I'm kind of like Dr. Fred Gertz. Uh, I, I think if you, if anybody's thinking it's going to give you four percent gross domestic product, real GDP, I don't see it. You know, maybe it impacts it a tenth or two tenths or three tenths of a percent. That's nothing to sneeze at on a twenty trillion dollar economy. But I think what it does more than anything, from what I can see, and this is nothing I can prove, I remember uh, when Ronald Reagan came in and we slashed taxes, uh, and this isn't pro-taxes or anything. I really, I'm not going to focus on the amount of taxes that were taken in or out. What I recall, because I began in this business then, is just how it unleashed the entrepreneurial spirit. When you kind of get out of the way of the entrepreneur and you take down barriers, some of those being taxation. Um, and now with you know companies being able to write off 100%, uh, you know we're in this big technological boom. I mean, there's been more technology in the last five years than, than we've ever had, and I think America needs to be on the lead of it. And I, I personally have pretty good confidence that probably the big thing, this, this, if any of this tax reduction, it may be regulatory reduction. Some people are for it. Some people are you know definitely opposed to it. Uh, I look for it to unleash, as an entrepreneur, my, entrepreneur myself, that's kind of what, what I think is going to be more of a trigger and more of a benefit than anything. Uh, so that's yet, to, that's yet to be played out. Uh, we did have, uh, it's uh, Mike Lee. Uh, Mike asked a question, so, and it said for one of the younger Rudy boys. So I only have David here. <laughs> I think that's and a I first. I suppose that I'm probably not counted as one of the younger Rudy <laughs> boys. Of course, I am the fourth youngest in my family of five boys. Uh, my wife and I are both contributing to a retirement plan, a simple IRA. We both contribute different amounts each month, around 100 to 200 a month. We have the same plan. I've been in it for a few years. She just started last year. She does contribute a little more than me. I will retire maybe six years before her. Would it make sense for us to just have one person contribute twice that we are now, or us both continue to do the way we're doing it? Uh, doing? I'm asking this primary for tax and cost reasons, Mike and Champagne. Well, I can't really tell. By the way, I'm in my mid-40s, and she's in her upper 30s. And I think I might have said his last name. Sorry about that. I read the top of the email. Uh, so I apologize. Uh, so, Dave, well, how would you answer that? My gut feeling after doing this for 35 years is keep, your, keep doing what you're doing, just for lots of reasons. Some are practical human reasons. It's, you know. No one knows what happens to marriages, et cetera. I'm not suggesting there's any problems in paradise for Mark, Mike. But from a practical reason, especially with that six-year age differential, um, I think of things like the uh, golden rule 55. If one of them, uh, one, so let's take a, a couple like this, not particularly this one. It wouldn't be unusual maybe for one to retire maybe younger than the other one or one older, but it might preserve that golden 55 rule that says, look, as long as you've reached the age 55 in the year you terminate and you know, separate, uh, you can take money out of a 401k plan, for example. I'm not quite sure on simple IRAs. That's what I was going to ask. Uh, that's, I'm not, I'm just off the top of my head, I don't remember if that, if that you know, is part of that. So the golden 55 rule may but not take place. But whether it's 55 or 59 and a half, the same Same differential, same because with that six-year difference, uh, so I, I'm inclined to keep it from a cost structure. If you're both in the same plan, I don't know that it's going to save you any costs. Uh, it might uh, because maybe there's administration fees per account. Uh, that that could be a differentiator. I wouldn't focus on that. I would say this. Whether you get to retire how and when you want to retire won't make any difference whether you, frankly, whether you whether a couple doubles up in ones or does 50-50 in each. Uh, now, if I had a couple where one was a really bad 401k plan, now I would still pick up the match, right? We always pick up the free money that's on the ground. So at least to the extent. So I, a lot of times, uh, and it's not unusual, for it's getting better, but it's not unusual for some 401k plans to still be very, very expensive, 2% plus total expenses. And in that case, I would tell the one spouse, pick up your free match. And then, you know, in Bob's account, you know, he has index funds available and, you know, he has a 401k plan that costs him three or four or five tenths of a percent. That might make some difference, but you're still going to pick up that free money. Right. The only other thing I can think of, and this would have to be weighed against the potential benefit of being able to withdraw from accounts earlier for the older spouse is theoretically, um, if you start thinking about required minimum distributions by contributing more to the younger spouse, 
you can kind of reduce your RMDs a little bit longer um, because you'd have smaller RMDs when the first spouse hits 70 and a half, and then you'd have that six years uh, until the, the second one actually gets to that. Dave, on age. the Castle Heating and Text Line, uh, we have a question. How quickly can you set up a donor advised fund? Do you recommend a minimum amount? Well, first of all, so we're sitting here, what is it, 28th? 28th. Um, are the donor advised funds, you could probably get in under the wire if you could wire cash, uh, wire funds today. I doubt if you could uh, set up securities. We were able to for some clients because they're already at Schwab. Right. And so it's a journal entry. But to the extent you don't have one and you don't have a relationship with a broker's firm that has donor advised funds, it might be a little difficult to accomplish at this point other than wiring what I'm going to call cash, but just, you know, money into w- the account. I would contact a few of the different custodians. So we mentioned Schwab, yeah. uh, Vanguard. I found um, that I ran into this last year. And as I recall, just from memory, Vanguard was pretty on the spot as far as as long as it's cash, kind of on the 28th or 29th, they can probably get it done. Yeah, and Schwab actually told me the 29th Okay, um, for the client we just did this for. Okay. So, you know, you might have, you know, best time to do it. If you're thinking about doing it is today. Now, as far as a minimum amount, I noticed that the ones I looked at don't have high minimum requirements, correct? I think it's like $25,000. Okay. So some of them, they could be 25,000. So you're going to have to look around, uh, for that. Uh, one, one article you might look at, <laughs> which could be a shortcut of going to all the websites. There's a, a guy named Michael Kitsis who's a, a blogger in the financial K-I-T-C-E-S. industry. K-I-T-C-E-S. And he, yeah, he has a, a an article about donor advised funds, and he has basically a, a grid showing the major custodians' donor advised fund offerings, okay. their expenses, minimums, oh, and minimum future contributions. So you might just try to Google search Michael Kitsis, and again, that's K-I-T-C-E-S, donor advised funds, and that can kind of shortcut this process. Okay, I think that I, hopefully that's helpful. Um, you know, Dave, obviously we've had some. You joined me at the beginning. I mean, towards the end of 2014, and and we've been in as I've maintained since 2013 uh, the what I call a secular long-term bull market. They typically last 15 to 20 years, and and they're not without their peril at times. Um, but it's interesting. I just saw an article. Uh, I think it was from CNBC that. Uh, the headline of the article was investors yank billions out of market, presumably stock market, following Trump's tax win. Uh, it highlighted the fourth largest weekly net withdrawals. Um, just looking at my notes here. Uh, on record, the most since the week after Brexit. Now, remember, that was, you know, everybody, the world was coming to an end again uh, for Brexit. It's a classic example to me of financial media celebrating terrible decisions. By I mean, this is the only thing I can reduce it to is, here we go again, and, and I started looking back. I knew I had seen an article like it, uh, you know, four or five years ago, and lo and behold, I did find a CNN article almost five years to the day. It was December 27, 2012, from CNN that essentially wrote the same article. Uh, and the headline of that was, Investors Yank $150 billion from stocks for third year. Now, it completely ignored the fact, that article, that the stock market during those three years was up 40% if you compounded and, and, and reinvested dividends. And so we know what happened to that poor crowd that three years in a row pulled out huge amounts of money five years ago. Uh, we know that they've missed quite, the, in 2013 alone, the Standard & Poor's 500 index, which is a broad measure of the U.S. stock market, was up 30%. Uh, even this dividend jumped 19%. So equity values or stock market values have and their dividends along with their dividends have been relentlessly making new highs ever since so you know i'm not going to stick my neck out and say last friday's article is we're going to be able to look back like we could on 2012 and say well we have a pretty good feeling what's going to happen to these investors but it just begins to show that you know the the real value of of an excellent advisor is to keep people from doing that um, and because people left to their own device uh, they're going to do that and they're going to get cheered on by the broad media as if that's a you know admirable thing to do and and that's why i think i've always said it's, it's one of the highest and noblest things an advisor can do is to keep their clients from making those types of mistakes and it's just all too common and 
gets back to my theory that there's this con you've heard me say this to clients probably hundreds of times there's this constant war between people's short-term emotional wants and their long-term or what i call lifetime financial needs and that's where the excellent investment advisor comes in and calls a truce between those two things i mean uh i don't know what you think you're you're in your upper 20s you've been in this business now for about five years um don't you, what, what's your take on that, just from, a, from an observation of watching people and how they behave now? Uh, is this not really the calling for the, the excellent advisor? Well, I think it definitely is. Even people who say, you know, I know you can't time the market, but they always say, but, and then they ask me where the market's going. And, and it's funny how often that happens. Even people who have kind of, they've had our investment philosophy explained to them, they intuitively grasp it and they still struggle with it. And that, I mean, that's people, like I said, who, who have been introduced to our philosophy. A lot of people haven't. Ingrained. They still think, you know, a lot of people, I still think most people actually think the job of an advisor or any investor is to be smarter than everyone else, to pick mispriced securities, to figure out the right time to get in and out of the market. And it just inevitably leads to poor results but but don't you you see that in, in the media basically the financial journalist whose mission is to divorce us of our long-term historical perspective um, I see it there at all times because all investors have heard decade after decade throughout their life is in order to be a successful investor you need to be able to forecast the economy which can't be done by anybody and even if you could it wouldn't be correlated to your investment outcome that they've been told that it's important to be able to time the markets, know when to be in and when to be out, to buy low and sell high, something that can't be done consistently. And then if not that, probably the most common thing we see when we look at investors that walk in with, that have been abused and looking to be disabused, is they've been sold this notion that they can predict the investment person, the expert, can predict future relative performance between asset classes or mutual funds based on past historical performance. There is no evidence of the persistence of performance. Uh, despite that, you can understand why most people uh, have not embraced the, our notion of, look, you don't have to outperform anything to be have an invest, uh, investment success. You just have to behave properly. And, and then our belief that over 90% of your lifetime outcome comes from one decision. How much you put in stock market versus the bond market. Uh, unfortunately, uh, people that were born in the shadows of the depression, too many times they, in the stock market to them is in the casino. Uh, and, and I understand that. Um, you, you know, My dad being born in 1916, as I always said, we didn't live in the depression, we just feel like we did. And I see that very common denominator. So you can see why, why people feel that way. And uh, it, just, it just doesn't make any sense to me. But the media doesn't do us any favors when they have headlines like this as if that was a wise thing to do. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> just hearing you say that, I think a big reason the people treat the stock market or think of the stock market as a casino is because a lot of people treat it that way. They're, the, the way that they're approaching investing is kind of like gambling. You're picking individual stocks. You're trying to predict what's going to happen you're looking for kind of a big win or an all-star performer and it's like well yeah when you take that approach to investing it is a little bit more like a casino because who knows what's going to happen when you take that approach. because if you're if you're doing that you're not investing you're speculating like exactly you would in a casino and you know i think even for the early part of my career i somehow even had that feeling that to be invested in the stock market was more like being a bobbing cork in the ocean you know drifting randomly uh who knows up or down and it's only when you look back and, and begin to really hone and build your long-term historical perspective is when you can look back and say what are these people talking about when, when i hear about people losing money in the stock market um, I remember because my dad was born in 1916, um, uh, he's not here any longer, but I remember late in his life, he, he just couldn't understand how I could have retired investors in the stock market at all, let alone maybe 50 or 60% of their portfolio. 
And, you know, don't you worry about them losing money? I said, Dad, you were born in 1916. I really don't know where the Dow was in 1916. But when you were 16 years old in 1932, I happened, because I just happened to know the Dow was at 4040, okay? And when we had this conversation, the Dow was at 10,000. Now, fast forward, we're at Dow almost, I'm going to round it up to 25,000. I said, how on God's earth do people lose money in an asset class that goes from 40 to $10,000, and that doesn't even include dividends and the rising dividend income stream and the reinvestment of dividends, just price only, goes up 250-fold. How on God's earth do people lose money in that? And that's when, when I started reflecting on all this. When I really, you know, in the early part of my career, tried to figure out what is the value of an excellent investment advisor? Is it, is it stock picking? Is it having a great forecast? Is it being able to know what interest rates and GDP are going to be? Um, all the things that I naively thought at the beginning, you know, on the doorstep of my career were important. And then you begin as you mature and as you actually begin to look at the evidence, which is only smart. And you, 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 then you ultimately have to come to the conclusion that, wow, really what the stock market is, it's a collection of companies run by innovators, run by the smartest, some of the smartest people on the planet that are constantly, regardless of what the tax rules are, the regulatory rules and the burdens are, constantly trying to design products that are cheaper and better year after year, decade after decade. And then you start getting the historical perspective of where we've come from. So go back and look at the numbers. And you start, you should anyway, and in the fate to me, in, in the face of all that, and which is where we are, well, I, we, you know, you, some people call it evidence-based investing. I just called having an adult memory investing, and you realize that the reason investors have such a difficult time um, retiring when they want, how they want, uh, the constant second guessing of their second guessing what they buy or don't, and then they're second guessing what they don't do. A lot of emotional turmoil can go away if you get this long-term historical perspective and you embrace it and you realize, look, I only have to harness returns. I don't have to do anything special at all. How do I, if historically speaking anyway, and this is no guarantee of the future, as we always say, but if the largest companies in the U.S. have compounded at a 10% per year compounded annual growth rate with dividends reinvested, and the smallest companies at 12, rounded down, 12% compounded, why does it have to improve on, uh, improve on that? Um, it strikes me that then you come to the conclusion, well, so, okay, I could either be a partial shareholder of companies. Everybody tells me that's risky. If with an adult memory and an historical perspective, that clearly isn't the life most pe that people have lived. And then the other asset class people can buy are bonds. And bonds are basically loans to those same great companies of America and the world. And they've earned 6% per year compounded. Well, on face, it would look like, well, bondholders, <clears throat> lenders to those companies have earned basically half the return, or, or put, look the other way. <clears throat> Owners of the companies have earned, you know, two times the return roughly of the bond, the lenders to those companies. But then that ignores inflation, which you can't do. Ignoring inflation in the equation when you're, when you're talking about his long-term historical returns is like forgetting that all the planets revolve around the sun. It's a kind of a big deal. And so if you strip out long-term compounded annual growth of inflation, the cost of living, some people argue with that, statistic it's it's the one we have <clears throat> it's run about three percent a year so in reality when you strip out the inflation it's the only sane way to do it and you look at returns it looks like stock owners have earned seven to nine percent per year compounded net of inflation and bond owners owners three uh, and that's probably at best and so in reality historically speaking then all anybody investors need to know is patient Lifetime investors of the great companies of America and the world have earned two to three times the returns of lenders to those companies. It's, it's, to me, it's, it's that simple. <clears throat> but it's not easy, is it? When you, when you talk to clients, it's not easy. It's not. And I think getting back to your point about people feel like there's, they're just this kind of bob or floating in the ocean, right. just kind of randomly drifting all over the place. You know, to be honest, there is a certain element of that involved in investing. I mean, we know over long periods of time, the market's going to be higher, but we don't really know how much higher. And in between, we don't really know 
how often there are going to be declines, uh, how large the declines will be. And in order for someone to earn those long-term returns, they have to actually be comfortable with a little bit of that ambiguity or uncertainty around their shorter-term results. Um, they have Well, to isn't that why the owners of companies have earned two to three times the return is because they basically had to put up with more unpredictability in the near term? Right. And I even mean, in the long term, it's unpredictable. Right. And a big part of that is it's like common sense, right? If something is a lot safer of an investment, people are going to be willing to pay a little more of a premium for that thing relative right. to basically the earnings it's going to provide you or the cash flows it's going to provide you. If there's a lot more risk involved or uncertainty or fluctuation, whatever it is that makes this particular investment unattractive to someone, they're not going to be willing to pay as high of a price for an equivalent share of earnings or cash flows that they're going to be receiving in return. Well, you just described a sensible, efficient market where the market says, hey, I can get 6% in your bonds. I'm not really going to take any risk in those bonds. I'm not saying they're risk-free, but high-quality AAA corporate right. bonds. <clears throat> okay, yeah, I feel I, I feel okay enough to say that's a very safe investment. Okay, it's not it's not risk-free, but it's really it's a cousin. Okay, I can get six in those. I can have all the predictability I want. I can go to even though I'm really getting three net of inflation. But if I can get six in your bond without any uncertainty or very little min, minimal. Uh, uncertainty, unpredictability of what my statement might look like next month or next year or five years from now. You got to do a lot better than that if you want me to be a partial owner of your company and take on that additional unpredictability of my outcome because the bond guys get paid first. If things go bad, they get their money first, which is why they don't earn much of a return because they're not taking much risk. It really all circles back to if you, if you can just step back at a 10,000 foot view and say, what is the deal when it comes to investing? It ultimately circles back to, I can either be an owner, partial owner of the great companies, or I can lend money to those companies. And, and it looks like the premium returns that the partial owners of those companies have earned historically, and again, I'm probably gonna obsess a little bit and say past performance is no indication of future results. That's the whole, but that's the whole point. Uh, even though they've gotten those premium returns historically, they've put up with premium fluctuation and premium on, call it what you want. Uh, the industry calls it risk. I don't call it risk. I, I, to me, losses, if you're broadly diversified, only come with human interaction, right? Intervention. They, humans have to create it. They, they have to mistake a temporary decline for a permanent one and, and panic and sell and, and surprises the mother of panic. So that's, that's that whole cycle. So. It really, to me, uh, that's why it became easy early in my life. And I think you've been able, and, and the other, your brothers and Ryan have been able to quickly adopt my philosophy, if you will, because, well, first of all, you went, you worked for a think tank, some of the smartest people on the planet for a couple of years, you and Paul. Um, it, it just becomes more sensible, doesn't it? As far as when now we can focus on what is it, what is our real value to clients? Is it really that investing stuff? No, probably not. It's creating uh, the best life people can have with the money and the income streams they have. And it frees up a lot of time to have those return on life conversations instead of return on investment conversations. And you've seen it. Well, you've seen me relate to clients. I've seen you relate to clients. The return on life issues ultimately trump the return on investment issues because people have real trouble earning their return on investments because they just don't they seemingly cannot behave. Yeah, I completely agree. Well, you have to agree. <laughs> you have to agree. Uh, you know, we're coming into the end of the year, and your brother Paul recently posted a, uh, our year-end personal finance checklist, which you can see at RudyWealth.com, or find a link to the article on our company Facebook and Twitter pages. I think he had something like 36 things. I said, Paul, okay, you can, you know, just top it at 12. Okay. <laughs> he told me. I'm, I the one, I'm the guy that always does that. <laughs> he said we can pick and choose the ones we like the best. Yeah. So, I noticed he divided it into uh, list into six main categories: investments, retirement accounts, tax, tax issues, insurance, estate planning, and financial planning. So, let's start off with investments. We've kind of been talking about that. We've been talking about it in a big picture way, but folks, if you don't get the big picture, you know, then 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 you you just listen to people that are are trying to talk about in basis points when they when the real problem is people not earning the percentage points they need to get. 
Um, what are some of the things year end now? We got a couple of days. If there's even, you know, last last week would have been a better week for this show, but a little more time. But still, uh, it's not too late. Some of these things aren't. There is no deadline of December thirty first. Right. And this may sound a little bit like a broken record to people because we recommend it all the time. But I think the big thing, especially after this year with the market having gone up so much, you want to review your asset allocation. If you started at a, say, 60% stock portfolio, unless you were putting contributions into bonds to help kind of rebalance along the way or withdrawing from stocks to help rebalance along the way, uh, your stock allocation has probably drifted up by a a fairly material amount. Um, and this is the kind of year where you'd say rebalancing is probably going to be a given. Yep. Be, you know, it's not a year where the stock market's up six and a half and bonds are up three. You might yawn and go, well, not really. But in a year where the broad market is up around 20 some odd percent, 25, I, I literally, it's probably embarrassing, but I really don't look at the stock market returns mostly. Uh, but we have double, you know, tw- it has a two in front of it. 20% plus gains, pretty much around the globe asset class-wise, especially if you just put them all together. So when 60% of your portfolio goes up 20% plus, if you're in emerging markets, 30% plus. If you're in some other category, international returns are better than U.S. returns this year by a pretty good margin. Um, having 60% of your portfolio or 50% of your portfolio rise 20% plus, you get to a point where it begs the question. I, is my asset allocation aligned today for the vision I have for this money over the next 10, 20, or 30 years? Right. And you have to remind yourself the reason for your initial allocation. You chose that for a reason, hopefully. Hopefully it wasn't an arbitrary decision. It may I been, find that most are arbitrary, frankly, whether they walk in having been to an advisor or not. But hopefully not arbitrary, but the reality, uh, it is. But the easiest thing to do is to start rationalizing. You know, I know we talked about how a lot of people pulled money out when the tax plan passed, but a lot of people are very positive on what they view the, the, the impact will be. And it's easy for them to say, well, it's only up, maybe I'm at 65% now. Let's just kind of let it run. I think it's going to go up from here. And you start getting into the market timing game. Even well, right. though so, you so t- Dave, you're telling me that two-thirds of my portfolio is up 25%. And the other third of my portfolio is up two or three. And let me understand this. You want me to get rid of some of that stuff that was up 20 or 25% and buy more of that stuff that just earned me two or 3%. I mean, that's the deal, right? That you can see what's going They don't say it that way, right? But that's right. what's going through their mind. Yeah, and it'll be people that swear in blood that they, they understand that you can't time the market successfully on a consistent basis. But it's still, it's just human nature to, to just... It messes with you. <laughs> well, it's that recency bias, and we extrapolate, you know, the most recent information into our. It takes over for our brain, and and it and it's as if the, you know they're in their minds. You know what they're really saying? Well, well, wait a minute. Next year, I'll probably be up twenty percent again, and I'll be up three percent in bonds. Mm-hmm. So why do I want to have less of that twenty percent stuff? Uh, so you could. This is that. This is the second guessing and the emotional turmoil I talk so often about with clients and on the radio and in my writings and newsletter is, you know, people's risk appetite, or let's call it attitude, you know, just what the uncertainty they'll upset. They they begin to see less uncertainty as the market goes up, and they see a lot more uncertainty when the market's going down, um, kind of the opposite of what you would hope one would behave. Yep. And I mean, I, even anecdotally, I see that going on right now, because I mean, understandably, everyone's kind of excited because you see your portfolio balance increased by 25%. I mean, that makes a big difference in the dollar value of your wealth for, you know, especially older people. Well, even with something. a balanced portfolio of a 50-50 mix of the U.S. broad market, just make it simple in treasuries or, or corporate bonds, you know, you've earned a double-digit return. You've earned the return of a 100% dose of broad U.S. stock market. Remember, I talked about the compounded annual return pretty close to 10%. And you're thinking, wow, you know, maybe I should add more. So it's an yep. interesting observation. Right. Um, the other thing, just moving on, um, is contributing to an IRA or a Roth IRA if you haven't done so already um, and you have the money available. Obviously, that's kind of a necessity, um, but that's something to think about. And technically, like you said, some of these, there's not really a December 31st deadline. It's just that 
it might be a, a reason for you to start thinking about some of this stuff because you can actually contribute to those until what April 15th or whatever right. the the day is before your tax filing um, but it doesn't hurt to contribute more because that's just more time that you're getting the tax advantages of those accounts okay so um, what about thinking about increasing contributions you know most people uh, there's a little bit of inflation out there. Um, wages have been increasing, you know, across the. I mean, when we look at the averages, we look at the average wage index in America, gone up two to three percent this year. So I would, in, most people probably anticipating some form of raise. Um, what say you about that? Isn't that a good opportunity to say, well, I'm not going to consume all of that raise. Another one percent per uh, of my salary per year is going to go into my 401k plan. Right. And I think that's a good way to look at it. And I always, the more and more I'm in this industry, I like to tell people, you don't have to look at things as all or nothing. So I've heard some financial people recommend, you know, every time you get a raise, save 50% of that raise and spend 50%. And then you get to enjoy some of it now and also increase your savings rate. And I think, you know, whether that's the specific number or not, I think the principle is good. It's, you know, enjoy some of your raise so that you're, you know, happy that you had it and you you're not just always deferring gratification into the future but you definitely want to take this is the time to increase your contributions without even noticing it and then the other thing that does if you'll if you'll actually do that is it it puts a cap so to speak or um, it reduces the increasing rate of lifestyle that lifestyle creep um you know you don't want to be 55 or 59 at your peak expense years. You know, you don't want to have locked in lifestyle that costs you 5,000 a month, but really your retirement income looks like it's going to be 3,500 a month. Um, so that when every time we get a raise by saying some of it's going to be an increase in my contributions and savings, it's keeping a lid somewhat on your lifestyle. Um, what about required minimum distributions? Hopefully everybody's probably taken theirs by now, but there's some deadlines there and the penalties are pretty harsh. Yeah, that's a big one. Um, you want to make sure that you take your required minimum distribution by the date because the penalties are pretty hefty. So um, basically, whatever amount you should have taken that you did not take um, will be penalized at 50%. So let's say you your required minimum distribution was that you had to take $10,000 and you took none of it. That'd be a $5,000 tax penalty, right? Right. So it's just something to be aware of. And nowadays, custodians are really good about notifying people, here's what your qu required minimum distribution is. Um, but it's still, it, it can sneak by you and you can miss it. And we've been suggesting that people look at, kind of do a pro forma of their what their tax return might look like for 2017. And it's not unusual for people that are retired because of favorable tax issues, uh, pensions not being taxed in the Illinois. There's a lot, there's just, we just see generally people are in a fairly low, most people, tax bracket. Um, we always hear about how high taxes are, but really for most retirees, taxes are pretty, pretty low. And it's not unusual to be in a zero to 10%, depending on how you can engineer the first four or five years of retirement. Um, what about harvesting capital gains? We always hear about harvesting losses. I don't know how people have losses, but uh, what about harvesting capital gains? Yeah, that's that's one that we run into actually more often than you would think. Um, and basically the idea behind it is that if you look at basically the up to the 15% tax bracket for ordinary income, capital gains within that kind of threshold right. of income are actually taxed at 0%. So it's like you get a step up in cost basis of those holdings for free. Right. Um, so you'd be kind of silly not to take advantage of that. And but you have to look at that in conjunction with coordinating other issues. Maybe I'm better off to convert money to a Roth, maybe. And that's only things that your financial advisor is going to go over with. But certainly, if I'm in a position to harvest gains and eliminate them permanently, at least on that lot, uh, I'm certainly going to look to take advantage of that. Right. And and one kind of caveat to that is if you've taken Social Security already, it could take what was totally tax-free Social Security benefits. It could trip you into having some of your Social Security tax. So that's, that's one thing that even if your income's low, you might want to look at um, whether it's worth it to kind of create yeah, You don't want to create, create a, that income. Turn a tax-free income stream or even a 50% of it's taxable and turning it into 85% um, when you could have avoided that. That's why I talk about, you know, you can't really look at these things in a silo. They really have to be coordinated with, <laughs> it's a little bit complex, 
because there's all these other side issues because if you do this then that triggers that and if that happens then that could trigger something else it's really kind of a matrix uh, that you have a lot of moving parts yeah and well frankly there's a reason that cpas exist and i, I think a lot especially any tax related items that we go over today i think it's something that you should definitely run by your cpa before you do any of this stuff because you want to make sure that you're not going to have unintended consequences or there's not something that you're missing and that's where a good cpa can can kind of be that that expert that you need right yeah, i think i think i think you're absolutely right i think anytime we're doing these things it's best so you pay a little bit of money to get some uh, unbiased advice and maybe keep you from having an unintended problem because uh, we see that from time to time how many times have people walked in and we'd say oh we wish you would have called us first you know now you're trying to undo something that sometimes they're not you know you can't undo them um, what about gifting the estate tax laws obviously are getting more friendly uh, right now any person can have somewhere around five and a half million of an estate without triggering any taxation it's going to double so you know, for most people around here, for most people, period, uh, they can have pretty large, larger states than most people could ever think about. Uh, but still, you have the annual gifting that you can do, 14000 um, And so you might think about that. If you if you were going to gift money and you, know, and you think, you know, you can do that without any reporting. If you want to give more than that, you just have to let your CPA know your, or your uh, tax preparer know that you gave somebody above Fourteen thousand. I think a lot of people, as an aside, are under this impression impression that you can't give somebody more than fourteen thousand yep. dollars. Either you can't do it, or if you do it, there's a tax trigger. And, and and don't you find that that's one of the misnomers? It's probably one of the most common. Absolutely. I I think you know, uh, estate planning attorneys and advisors and CPAs. A lot of times they'll tell people. The rule about okay you can give fourteen thousand dollars per year without eating into your lifetime exemption but what people hear is you can give fourteen thousand a year right and they <laughs> they don't they don't kind of get the the other side of that which you can give more it's just going to eat into your lifetime estate tax exemption and you're gonna have to file a tax return or a, whatever the form, form number is so and i just i just think that's interesting i probably uh oh half dozen times a year i have to provide some clarity on that and understandably so i mean there's just start some of these certain issues the golden 55 rule if you're 55 and you terminate service in a four you know in a company and you're in a 401k and you have turned 55 that year that you can start taking out withdrawals from your 401k without the tax penalty of course you always want to talk to your own tax advisor just to make sure that you're you know you're there isn't mm -hmm. something about your situation that's different what about uh, when it comes to insurance um you know sometimes properties appreciate uh, life changes. Uh, you know, where where do you stand on that? Do you have those conversations with your clients? I think it's just really a good time to do a review. Like you said, if things have changed, maybe your income's increased a lot and you need to increase the amount of term insurance if you want to be able to replace your full income. That, and you always recommend term. Level. You don't recommend permanent or ordinary or universal or variable life. Yeah. I mean, just I, like that. I, I can't really think of a, a there's very unusual circumstances where whole life insurance makes sense more for like estate planning purposes but but that's almost that's going out, almost the going out for most people unless you're super super wealthy you're just better off just buying a term insurance policy because they're so much cheaper and then you can save basically the amount that would have gone to that whole life policy and, and invested in the market and i was going to ask you about beneficiary designation because that also kind of includes retirement accounts at work or your iras etc you probably want to make sure you know, if you can't clearly, if you clearly don't know who your beneficiaries are, go take a peek or call the insurance company, verify. Um, that's probably a good idea too, because uh, it's more than once in my career I've seen people, you know, think that they have, you know, Bob is the beneficiary and it's really supposed to be Mary now, and mm -hmm. uh, and that's that's a problem. So that's one of the things you want to look at. And adding to that, I would say make sure you have contingent beneficiaries on accounts so that if the person that's listed as your primary beneficiary predeceases you, you have somewhere where the account's going to go, you know, automatically. So typically you would see, you know, uh, it goes to my wife, uh, if, we're, if we're both together in a car crash and we get killed, then we want to make sure that, oh, and it's the four kids equally or however you want to do it. Right. Um, in my case, I'm giving it all to Daniel. I just want you to know that <laughs> I just, ahead of time. I don't want to have hard feelings down the road. I want to, I want to see the hard feelings now. <laughs> uh, health savings accounts, is there a deadline there? 
You know, I I assume there's a deadline by the end of the year. That one I certainly I, using up your head. FSA or flexible spending account. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, and FSAs are use it or lose it. Um, so those you definitely want to use up. Um, I guess, but what if you don't have medical expenses or anything? Well, they're, they're pretty lenient as far as what you can do. So you just load up on some things yeah. ahead of time is what the way I, from what I read, that's what most people do. I've never been in one of those plans. So Neither I, have I. You know. And I, I suppose if, if you did have a big excess in your flexible spending account, you may reassess how much you're going to contribute the following sure. year. Yeah. You because, don't want to leave any money on the table. Right. Um, then review wills would be, be sensible issue if it's been a while. Yeah, and I think that's similar to the beneficiary designations. It's just like things change in your lifetime. And, and with wills and estate planning documents, especially, you know, if it, if your family situation changes or maybe you have a new grandchild and you want to make sure that you have some sort of provision for them or whatever it is, I think you want to reevaluate those every year, maybe every few years or anytime there's a change in your family situation or financial situation. All right. Well, thanks, David, for joining me. That's David Rudy, Certified Financial Planner Professional with Rudy Wealth Management. And uh, we've got about another minute here or less. Uh, I want to take my this as I do every year. I'm so thankful that WDWS gives me the opportunity and gives my family the opportunity to do this show. We hope that listeners, uh, I hope it provides some guidance and some help. Uh, we're told constantly it does. Uh, that always makes me feel good. And, uh, and to the, Mike Hale and everybody around, Scott, you know, Happy New Year, man. Uh, happy New Year. Thank you. And, uh, you know, everybody at WWS that has been friends of mine for 25-plus years, I, call, I consider them friends. And then just want to say to Jim Turpin, Jim, I hope you, if you're listening out there, I, uh, we miss you. And uh, we, we uh, hope to see you around the community. I'm sure we will. But uh, congratulations on your retirement. This is Paul Rudy for Paul Rudy's On The Money. Thanks for listening. Join us for the second and fourth Tuesday of each month for Paul Rudy's On The Money. Views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. This is News Talk 1400, WDWS, Champaign-Urbana.